0: Yo, let's go. What's up? It's Parada, Nicky P. Give me a call. Love to talk
1: to you, brother.
2: In this one, I talk with Nick Parada about creating and working at King of the Hill, a legendary snowboard competition held in Thompson Pass in the 1990s. Prada talks about what it was like being the director, an event promoter, and how the event came to be. Before doing King of the Hill, he was a professional snowboarder, pushing the nascent sport into new areas of discipline and filming for the most progressive videos of the 90s. He was one of the best snowboarders in the world, back when the professionals weren't considered traditional athletes. They were often dirtbags and drifters, with an attraction to rowdy groups and the outdoors. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man Tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the crude Patreon for $50 or more Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Nick Parada. Parada says, that the rate of progression in sports moves quickly. So most athletes have about seven or eight years to be at the top of their game. After that time is up, the next generation of riders are on a higher level of progression. So to continue his presence in the snowboard industry, he made a transition from being a professional snowboarder to an event promoter. It was a move that spawned King of the Hill and also set him down a path that would forever include Alaska. So here he is, Nick Parada. (laughs) <laughs> this red light right here? It means we're recording. Okay, fired up.
1: Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work.
2: So where where are you right
0: now? So right now I'm in the Kiski, just north of Kenai. And I'm getting ready to fish guide for Alaska West Air, the original guys that we started flying helicopters and planes with back in the day. This will be my 29th year fish guiding for those boys. And so I fish guide basically end of May all the way to the end of August, September. I'll head out to the Mulchatna for about three and a half weeks, four weeks, moose hunt guiding. And then October, November down to Kodiak where we'll do steelhead and deer hunting so it sounds like alaska
2: really grabbed a hold of you
0: oh it totally dude it it totally did you know me and farm's first trip 88 89 up to the moose's tooth totally out of our element just happened to get the trip because mike and dave hatchet were called by climbing magazine to come climb the mountain and go do it and they couldn't do it so they asked uh they turned it over to us and me and farm were lucky enough with Chris Pappas to get up there and spent 28 days climbing that mountain. And it changed my life because this was the pinnacle. There is no better place in the world because of the elevation snowfall, um, and lack of people that you can go and get what you wanted. That was the pinnacle. When I was up on the moose's tooth, that was it. There is no better place. Any human could be and ride a snowboard.
2: So looking back on that, that first time in Alaska in 1988, do you have any memories of that time? Any specific stories? You know, it was right after my
0: accident. That was the first time that I got back on my snowboard after I freaking slammed those rocks in my head. So I was kind of skeptical. And was I going to remember, did I know how to do this still? And all those thoughts were totally going through your mind once we got up to the ruth glacier and there was no turning back kind of thing it was like you know super scary Mm
1: -hmm.
0: one thing i do remember though is all the people in talkeetna then it was tiny little town then were so cool billy and uda fitzgerald they were the people that put us up and we stayed at their house for a couple days and it was just like a one room shack and they had four kids no room for anything but they totally opened up their house Opened, let's use our cars and really helped us out and the funny thing about it is the day we summited there's an airplane flying around above us me and farm and are on the top mm-hmm. airplane's buzzing us and it was billy fitzgerald and he's like hey i dropped a package at your base camp for you guys and by this time we were out of cigarettes and dope and freaking beer and everything that we brought up there so we went back down to our high camp and me and Scott Polly, the photographer, were like, let's go down there, dude. There's hella food. I know we got some cigs down there. Let's go. So we summited out and then hiked all the way down to base camp and hung out there for about seven or eight hours. In that package, there was a case of beer, quarter of weed, carton of cigarettes, freaking all these pictures their kids have drawn and cookies and candy I mean it was awesome it was just like something like what you know these people went out of their way to put this stuff together to get in their airplane to drop it at our doorstep so right there I knew you know people up here really take care of the people around them and it really coming from the city and being in Tahoe and thinking you know I was a shit really got humbled when I got up here and besides the writing too the writing was so scary and death-defying and all that you know that's another memory in itself, but, um, yeah, a lot of things, dude, from Farm jumping off an 80-footer, and breaking his board, to Brian Bailey, one of the photographers, he actually rode off of Farm's 70-foot cornice, of uh, Serac, before Farm did, and, uh, obviously didn't land it, it was in a whiteout, but it's just funny, funny things like that, Farm had picked out this... Serac to jump off the whole time Brian Bailey a guy named Lance who was our guide went up and we're fixing ropes on the traverse section of the top of the mountain and we're all sitting in camp just chilling Lance comes back in and he's like where's Brian? and we're like shit well I don't know where's Brian? well Brian started snowboarding down and the fall line that he was taking led him right off that 70 foot Serac and so we all went Went looking for him and out of the freaking fog, here comes Brian, totally beat up, freaking tripod broken, all this shit spread out everywhere and crying. I want to go home. Get me out of here. I'm fucking over it. You know, just it affected him. And I was, I watched him. I was like, whoa. And this guy was a big mountain dude, big, big mountaineer. And he just scared himself so bad. He was like ready to throw the towel in. And It really became serious then because like shit, you can't go we need you, you know, and uh, Ended up calming down and all that ended up staying and uh, About a week later, we're doing some photos Chris Pappas Brian Bailey's shooting Chris Pappas Chris Pappas rode right above him started an avalanche washed Bailey off about a 40-foot Serac about 300 yards down and we're all watching the whole thing like holy shit! i jump off the serac freaking go down to him he's just like his neck his head and his neck is the only thing sticking out of the snow he is fucking wigging out just like fuck this place you know yeah. he thought that place had it in for him for sure so there was just some scary moments like that dude you know and there's not there's nobody can do anything you have to radio in to get any help or anything so Being put in that situation right after my crash, it really strengthened me, Mm -hmm. made me stronger, and made me realize that, you know, I could still do this shit and made me realize that Alaska was the best place. And I've been coming back ever since.
2: So, that crash, that accident that you mentioned, this is the one in the first TB, totally bored snowboard movie, right?
0: Correct, yeah, me, the Hatchet boys, I think Far might even have been there. Um, we're doing some backcountry in Kirkwood. And freaking just fucking around. Had a sick line off the snow, onto the dirt, and then like a little quarter pipe rocket. And I did it a couple times, told him to move camera over here. Let me try it one more time. And boom, cratered into it. Freaking Dave Hatchet ran straight to the fucking highway right when he stepped on that highway highway patrol driving by how lucky is that and then he called the helicopter and got out of there my very first heli ride by the way
2: so do you remember that whole crash or did it knock you out and then you just kind of woke up in the hospital
0: yeah dude i i don't remember anything of that just what i've been told and obviously watching it on the video and stuff Mm -hmm. and i don't even remember being in the hospital I remember waking up in my house in Tahoe, going in the bathroom, looking at myself in the mirror and going, what the fuck happened? And my roommate's like, oh, dog, you fucked up. Tom film, don't sweat it, you'll see it, you're all good. And yeah, lost some teeth, definitely had some memory loss and
2: major head trauma, but came out of it. And it sounded like you you had kind of a line, like you... You wanted to hit the rock like a quarter pipe? Is that what I heard?
0: Yeah, I was going to like just kind of pop right off the rock. So it was, yeah, it was a definite line. And I did it twice before that's on film Mm -hmm. that you can see. And I said, oh, man, if you just move your camera here, I'm going to go faster, and I'm really going to pop off at this time higher. And I was just leaning too freaking far forward, man. Boom.
2: Got me. Do you think there was a kind of a fearlessness back then that was possibly kind of born out of uh, being naive?
0: No, the fearlessness was not being born in a naive, naivety, if that's even a word, but it was more of everything is so new. Everything you're doing, no one's done. Every time you put that board on your feet and you go down and you go do something, make something up no one's done it so it was more being pushed by your bros right Mm -hmm. oh these boys are doing this watch this i'm gonna go over here and do this so it was more that it was more there was such a build up at that time right everybody's creating these tricks and doing these six skateboard tricks and you know so it was just more of you're trying to outdo your friend or just do something that he's not even though he made that up or he's only a handful of guys can do that trick. But so you, yeah, I think it was just, you know, it's just who you're with. And at that time, it was just for fun.
2: Nobody knew, right? hmm What can you tell me about filming for TV back in those early days?
0: Yeah, Pat Solomon got with the Hatchet Boys. Pat Solomon's one of the original guys I was, came up with, putting filming Totally Bored. my friend I grew up with in grade school, Hollywood guy. Super good athlete, um, but majorly into filming. So he put it together. Hatchet's filmed it. Uh, Pat kind of directed and produced it and kind of stuff. But it was awesome, dude. It was it was it was awesome. I was lucky to be around those guys at that time. And the progression of what the Hatchet Brothers did with the whole TV series, yeah, that it was it was perfect timing on their part, and they had just the essence of the sport at that time in the palm of their hands.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you ever go back and
0: rewatch those movies? I don't to tell you the truth. Um, I have a few copies of all that stuff put away deep, you know, hidden. Um, if I see some stuff on TV, I'll watch it, but, but I really don't, dude, I've kind of gotten past the whole snowboarding era. I've obviously my history with it, and all the accolades, the place I've been all over the world. Yeah, it's, it's it's been a super awesome life, but I haven't dwelled on it. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I haven't tried to make it continual or try to have this rebirth or this is what I was. I don't, in a weird way, man, I don't need those accolades, right? I know what I've done. I know where I've been. I know how I've been. Mm-hmm. That's enough to know what kind of person I am for myself? Does that even make sense? I mean, yeah, yeah. On to the next thing. Yeah, it's it's on to the next thing, but still, I hold all that shit sacred, dude. That time and so lucky to be involved and be around and have my foot in all those places and touch all those people and have all those people watch my videos and see that shit. I mean, that's that's I'm fulfilled. Right. I've, I've not only have I ridden some of the sickest shit and done some rad stuff while on my board, I'm fulfilled by the people that can watch that and appreciate it as well. Right. That's a whole nother level
1: mm-hmm.
0: of fulfillment. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it kind of does to me. It's not only have I set out to ride these mountains and, and get on film and let people see what I'm doing now that people have seen it and I've gotten the accolades and and I still have respect in the industry. And you know, I'll talk to 60 year old guys that have watched my movies. Right. So Mm -hmm. as well as 20 year old kids. So it's, it's, it's cool to be involved in that point, but yeah, dude, I just move on and do shit. I love doing them. I'm, I'm in the PGA program an assistant golf professional in the wintertime. So I play golf. So when I'm not in Alaska, that's what I'm doing every single day Yeah, golf teaching working at the golf course so it's hard to keep that snowboard dream alive year round you know especially when I got to make money in the winter and I can't just go pop around snowboard and high five people all over the place
2: do you possibly feel like there's um maybe comfort in trying something new you know because you did make it so high in snowboarding as high as you you can make it and you do have that superstar status now.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly it, dude. I mean, for as much effort as I put into it, I got to the top of where I could have been, Mm -hmm. right? Had I put more effort into marketing myself, maybe getting a manager, going that route towards the end of my career, that could have perpetuated and gave me a few more years out of it but when you're involved in something that moves so quickly the the rate of progression moves so quickly that everybody only has a certain time slot dude and it's usually about 7 to 8 years after those 8 years there's people that are better than you there's people that are faster than you they're going to do twice as many tricks as you can so i realize that right i know shit by the time I started riding with Travis Rice and these guys, and I'm like, holy shit, how can they go that fast? How can they still be standing up? I was mm-hmm. so blown away when I did First Descent and did some riding with Travis, and that was it. Even Farm I was like, that's it, Prot. we're done. He like, this is, <laughs> we can't do that shit, this is it. I said, yeah, whatever, Farm, we, we were riding before he was born, talked him off that ledge, but it's the truth there's not much longevity in this sport as far as making money and it's hard because as you get older you being 30 no you gotta have a job if you could snowboard every day you would but you can't so so it was easy for me to to be like step aside quietly or just fade out of the scene quietly you know what i'm saying yeah gracefully gracefully and and the king of the hill is something that kept me in that scene as well you know what i'm saying it kept me relevant and kept me up to date with what was going on and um yeah basically since i haven't been putting that on it's it's been i don't even know how long it's been dude what was it? it's probably been 11 years 10 years who knows
2: and what was your role at king of hill king of the hill so, King of the Hill basically came out of
0: the first World Extreme Snowboarding Championship. Mike Kozad put it on at the St. Lodge, Paid 900 bucks for this contest. Ended up sleeping on the floor of a bar. That was my lodging. Shitty food. And we did one day on Odyssey. And then we went to Diamond. He had like hella people hella contestants on top of diamond then the head rescue guy head safety dude went up the to top of diamonds like what is everybody doing up here huge avalanche and the head safety dude got sucked off the top of that mountain oh, because man. the whole ridge blew. dude it was like a quarter mile avalanche cornice fell literally sucked this dude off he tumbled down 2,000, 2,500 feet, however far it was. Jeez. Chet went, picked him up, pulled, plucked him out of the debris. Boom. Contest over. And I was really fucking dismayed. I was like, fuck this shit. This is bullshit. So, just kind of came up with my own thing, dude. King of the hill, you know, let's, let's not just find out who's the baddest on the extremes. Let's find out who's the fastest, who can do the best tricks, and who can be the most extreme, right? Mm-hmm. All around king of the hill and basically got with your uncles, and um, a couple other people managed to pull one off, and it went off really well, and it went good for a few years. And my role was basically, I was the director, so the coordinator. I was the guy that put the rescue crews together, put the bander guys together, put all the competitor coordinators together, so I would, make all my make all the teams to run the event basically Mm -hmm. and be the face of the show and interviews and blah 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 um yeah basically it ended because it's hard to make hard to raise money for that shit dude that's that's the problem with big events like that red bull they got cash travis rice he tapped into that when you can have an event at a ski area and draw two, 3,000 people to buy your product and see your banners, there's value in that. But when you got 100 people in the middle of nowhere and your product's nowhere in sight, there's not much value in that. So that's always been the hardest thing is raising money for that. And that's one thing that I hated doing and never wanted to be involved in.
2: You know, I talked to... Steve Claussen and Julie Zell on a previous episode. And mm-hmm. Steve brought up this situation where he was at this, this big gathering where they started talking about X games and starting the X games. And, you know, he stood up and was talking about, Hey, there's this thing, you know, back that we're doing and King of the Hill is kind of at the forefront of backcountry you know let's invest in that and they just kind of poo-pooed the idea and they took their money their sponsorship money and put it toward x games and there was a point in that conversation where i asked him you know do you believe that x games took money away from king of the hill and he said yes oh
0: yeah totally and it's yeah it's for having a pretty cool idea and a pretty good contest. And if you think about it, it's an awesome concept. It just never took off, dude. There was just never that super backer. And if you think about it, I mean, there's not even really any events like it. I mean, I guess they're doing some Verbier stuff and there's some free ride stuff going on. But there's no big events like it anymore, really.
2: Well, I think that they have the the king and queen of Corbett's in Jackson mm-hmm. Hole that... Yep seems like it's it's pretty similar but at the same time i mean it's inevitable that even an event that is somewhat similar to king of the hill that's happening right now is going to be more tame it just has to be because that element just can't exist now it seems like
0: it's just money dude we have money we could put a nice event on safely and to it all again have a huge festival atmosphere and you know that is what was one of the best things about the event it's just I had every I had 100 people in a parking lot you know mm-hmm. I had everybody corralled and it was an, it was an awesome experience for
2: everybody involved it was a party did you ever have to put out any fires yeah some fires freaking
0: like we rented the Valdez Civic Center for our closing ceremonies and Fuck we trashed that place. And I'm still hearing about it after all these, every time I go to the town, <laughs> I'm still hearing about it. You guys still owe us money for this thing. All the freaking sword marks in the floor and freaking trash drapes and just, yeah. Stuff like that. But not really, you know, it ran smooth, dude. It was a pretty easy event. Everybody knew their place and everybody was stoked.
2: Mm-hmm. What do you think was one of the craziest things to happen at king of the hill one of the craziest things oh
0: i remember miles burgett man he had a sick run one year just crazy crazy lines stuff like that people like anton and lutagi badass euro guy Mm -hmm. and he had Tourette's the whole time you know so he was ticking the whole time and just the people man just the faces that rolled through you know even watching people grow through that event right Mm -hmm. starting as really young kids and ending up um yeah man it's just the, the whole experience because it's such a sick spot When you're humbled by your environment, you're in a different mood, you know, Mm -hmm. you're half scared, half stoked, you're anxious. You can't wait, but you don't even want to go there at some point, you know? So it's, it's a good feel. It's a really good vibe when you have that, that going on up there.
2: It sounds like in this conversation and previous conversations that I've had about King of the Hill, that it definitely takes a certain type of person to continue to go to that place, to Thompson Pass, to Valdez. Um, there are the people who, who go and they get scared and maybe they never go again or they take a run and then they kind of seize up and then don't go back up. But, you know, there are people like you and like Dan coffee, you know, Mm -hmm. Steve Kloss and Julie Zell, uh, my uncle Jay, you know, people like that who continue to go back because they're drawn to it.
0: Totally. It's, it's a magical place, dude. And it's endless and whatever you want. And that's, you know, people think it's only super extreme out there, but it's not. There's, it's, you want to jump off cornices. You want to ride shoots. You want 30 degree power runs for miles. And I mean, that's the draw of the place. And, when it's good, it's great.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, and that's, that's it. You got low elevation mountains, maritime snowpack and a wet, heavy snowpack that sticks to vertical there. So you can do a lot of stuff there that you can't do in Europe or anywhere else. Right.
2: You know, can you take me through your typical day as coordinator and director at King of the Hill on, like a typical day
0: so the whole the whole the, the whole great thing about it was is just you put teams together so basically i'd wake up i'll have a meeting with my rescue guys and i'm so i was dealing with my my rescue guys and i don't say safety guys because nothing is fucking safe up there so it was all about rescue so my rescue guys uh, about two weeks three weeks before the event they're already out there monitoring the slopes basically getting free heli rides, but I'll go from the rescue. Then I'll go to my head uh, banner coordinator, making sure that all the banners and flagging and everything's showing up or is on time. And then you're going to go to the competitor coordinator, start figuring out who needs what, how come he's not here, you know, and just dealing with that. So it's just like, you know, you're running a big company kind of deal Mm -hmm. and you're just touching base with everything, making sure everything's moving and everything's where it needs to be, depending on the timeline.
2: Do you remember what those event planning meetings were like when everyone would sit down and you'd, you'd spitball ideas?
0: Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like you would think about it today. It's more like me and your uncles in the freaking room, smoking cigs, drinking beer, thinking, well, how are we going to do this? Well, let's just get these guys to get, you know, let's go borrow some equipment from these guys. we got to get his plow and borrow his truck, you know. And it was just like, because the community was so small and, and the town was really backing us, we, you know, it's just basically having a meeting with, with whoever it is and trying to figure out how to either acquire the shit or make it make it useful, so. Mm-hmm. And it was all a lot of in-hotel rooms. I mean, frick, we lived in the totem or we had RVs up at the pass. So the rescue guys stayed up at the pass. Everybody else basically stayed down at the totem.
2: Do you remember if there were any ideas that were turned down or maybe ones that just never came to fruition?
0: Towards later in the event cycle or lifespan, you know, the people start thinking about let's, let's put some skiers, you know, let's, let's tap into the skier market. But I kind of was always against that, dude. <laughs> Why is that? If there was could be one pure thing in snowboarding event, it would be this one, right? Because skiing doesn't have an event that has freestyle, downhill, and extreme, right? It doesn't have the three disciplines. There's no other sport that has winter sport that has a three-discipline event. And that's what made King of the Hill so unique. Mm-hmm. And that's what was so cool. I'd have the top downhillers in the world. And back in the early days, there were downhillers, right? There was actual downhill events and giant slalom and slalom and gates and a whole nine yards. So I was tapping into those guys. Then the freestyle guys get the best freestylers because I'm going to have the sickest freestyle, natural freestyle course we can find. And then the extreme guys. So by bringing all three of these disciplines into one event, now we have the best snowboarders in the world all of them mm-hmm. so i didn't want to do that to ski in i didn't want to, i don't know i was just because i was in the hate skier generation as well dude don't forget that you know yeah and even though i have a hell of a lot of good ski buddies and i have nothing against skiers it was always you know no this is this is for snowboarders only or this is snowboarding mm-hmm. these are the best snowboarders in the world i don't want to put them against skiers I want to put them against other snowboarders
2: what do you think about what snowboarding has turned into
0: I think snowboarding has gone commercial I think snowboarding has turned into the masses um but that's just the engine that it is dude it's just going to get bigger and Obviously the sport needs more people to get more talent to get more money involved in it but Compared to how it was back when in my heyday, you know, it's it's Triple fold, you know, if you figure I'm second generation snowboarder We'll say Chuck Barfoot Tom Sims uh, Steve Link all those guys are first-gen snowboarders, right? They're the guys that actually started making the shit riding it blah 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 I'm um, second gen. You're probably like fourth gen. Right now it's probably up to like seventh generation. I don't know. You could probably figure that out if you sat down and and aged aged the best guys at this at the time, right? You could probably come up with a formula, but so being in that second gen, you know, it's so new and we had to fight for ours. That's why we didn't like the skiers, because they were they owned the mountains and we were just kind of going on their mountains and having to fight for their terrain or or whatever you know whatever you want to say about it but i think it's just the the snowboarders today they're so freaking good dude they're actually athletes these days right yeah they train they're they're they got agents they you know they're it's 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 a profession beyond snowboarding if that makes sense Mm mm-hmm my day it wasn't fucking me richie fowler your dad fucking your uncle we used to fucking go up with bongs beers in our backpacks acid no i was never really a tripper on there i'm sure those guys were doing that but i never i couldn't deal with that
2: i heard people used to uh drop it in their eyes oh yeah all that
0: shit yeah i won't name any names but yeah there's some people up there that were doing that shit. but yeah so back then we weren't athletes. We were just riding nowadays. It's the people are, are athletes and it's a professional, if you're getting paid for it, that is, it's a professional sport for sure.
2: Yeah. I think it's an interesting thing to think about because, you know, I've said or said, and thought the same thing as you is that snowboarders are athletes now rather than kind of dirt bags you know right. the people the people that i looked up to the uh the snowboarders that i grew up looking up to were like you know the riders that partied their ass off the night before you know woke up hung over and just did the most amazing runs Yep. hung over you know or, or still drinking and, and drunk
0: yep yep those were the days dude that's how it was Nobody was working out and training and fitness and cardio and all that. It was, you party hard. and That's why I don't drink, dude. I was never really a big drinker back then because I couldn't ride hungover. I hated it. Mm. Could not ride drunk. Hated that. So that's why, and watching farm and everybody be idiots, drunk as hell, that also helped me not drink too. But yeah, that's. That's how it was then. You know, your training was walking up, hiking up.
2: Yeah. How do you think 20 year old Nick Parada would think about riders nowadays? 20 year old piss at the world, Nick Parada. I don't know, dude. I,
0: I would probably think, you know, these guys are just fucking stupid. Same seven guys doing the same seven tricks. Like I've thought all my life, you know, that's, that's that's what I think about when I think, you know, snowboarding. You watch a video, it's the same seven dudes doing the same seven tricks off the same seven hits. But 20-year-old Nick Parada, I don't know, he'd probably be impressed, dude. He'd be impressed by how big they're going. He'd be freaking scared to try and keep up with that. Um, and, you know, I think that is one reason why I chose free riding over freestyle or any other type of snowboarding is cause it was easier for me to be the best at what I could do. Right. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do a perfect method in a half pipe, but I could do a pretty good one off a cliff or off a wind lip or something like that. You know what I'm saying? So, and it was just funner to me. It was just funner to go fast. And that was my whole deal. I loved going fast and, you know, jacket flapping fast. So, and that's another reason why I love Alaska there's no other place you could go as fast as gravity and your body weight will take you mm-hmm. except up in Alaska you know you can't do it at a ski resort so there's so many limits that you're you're put on at a ski resort and in bounds compared to, to out of bounds and that's why i just chose to spend my time in the mountains more than the ski area
2: how did you get into snowboarding
0: Oh, you know, I graduated high school 85 and 83, 84, 82, 80. I was a vert skater, pretty good vert skater in those days. And me and my friends just ended up seeing some Burton boards, seeing a little bit of snowboarding, um, Thompson's videos and stuff. And so we ended up making, we made a mold out of two by fours, cut the mold out, seven plies of maple, boom, seatbelt straps for... Um, our bindings and that was it. Went up to Southern California. That's when I lived in Southern California, went up to Mount Waterman, cracked a ridge. The first time I ever put that thing on my feet, whole rundown without falling. I was like, oh, this shit is way too easy because it's strapped to my foot unlike like a skateboard. Mm-hmm. And uh so that's basically how I got into snowboarding is doing that.
2: Um yeah, snowboarding 1983, 84. I read somewhere that you made your own snowboard at some point in the 80s. Yeah, that was it. That was the snowboard. That was The one that you were riding. Yeah. You know what's interesting about what you said about liking snowboarding because you thought it was easy, easier than skateboarding because it was strapped to your feet is I've heard the same argument from a skateboarder or from skateboarders on the other side of that, which is that snowboarding is too easy i'm not doing it
0: right yeah i can understand that but it can also be very difficult even though it's strapped on your feet depending on what you're going down and what you're pushing yourself through you know Mm -hmm. and that's the beauty of the sport there's no limits dude it's like golf you're you're never gonna reach the top you're never gonna be the best at. you're never gonna fucking master it ever that's why you keep doing it and that's why you keep going bigger and longer and further, right? You're trying to master your craft and be the best at it, Mm -hmm. but you won't because there's always a steeper mountain or a bigger cliff or whatever you're into. So yeah, it's easy to a point, but once you start pushing yourself and putting yourself in situations that you're not comfortable in, it's not very freaking easy, dude.
2: Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. There's There's a cop really quick. Looks
0: okay. like you better fucking lock your door, dog.
2: Sound like he's right up front. <laughs> yeah, they're always right <laughs> up front. <laughs> so what do you think about top tier athletes like Tiger Woods and Travis Rice? You know, you just said that you have these athletes that, you're, you know, you're never going to master golf. You're never going to master snowboarding. But it seems like people or athletes at that level, like they're kind of in their own game.
0: They're kind of in their own game for a longer amount of time, a longer noticeable amount of time than everybody else, right? At Mm -hmm. one point, I was at the top of my game, dude, I could jump off anything, land it right away. Doesn't matter how big it was, right? Whether that was for a week, a month, or a year, two years, however long that was, that was it. That was my pinnacle. That was the top of my arch, right? Mm -hmm. Same with Tiger Woods, right? He peaked out for a long time. And then he came back down, dude. Now he'll never be the same, especially since his accident, blah, 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 blah. Travis Rice, he's still peaking. There's going to be a time where he's going to bottom out. And he's, the you know, he's got the rounding of the curve kind of thing, dude. So it's just a longevity thing. The longer you can stay healthy, if you're at that level, the longer you're going to be at the top. The longer you're going to be pushing things, creating things, and making shit up.
1: Hmm.
0: i mean that's that's my opinion i it doesn't matter what sport you're in you know you, you only have a certain amount of time that you're going to be doing it whether it's for physical mental or just the progression of other people and it's just it's just a matter of time and i knew that was coming in snowboard and i tried to get something else going on before or right when i was knew i wasn't going to be making any money snowboarding you know Mm -hmm. And luckily snowboarding brought me to a place where, okay, I know this is what I want to do when I'm done snowboarding.
2: When did you realize that you needed to prepare for that or even make that transition to something else besides snowboarding?
0: So I don't know if it was like, okay, fuck, I need to do this now. I better get it going. I think it was more. So your uncle Jay Your uncle Richie Fowler. (laughs) You ever meet that guy? You even know who I'm talking about. You know, the
2: foul. So Richie's not my uncle.
0: I know he's not your uncle. Okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think I may have met, I may have met him kind of in passing or, you know, when I was really young, but not in my memory. I don't, I don't have a specific memory.
0: Would your dad ever tell you about him or your uncle Jay, do your uncle Jay and Richie were they were bros.
2: Yeah, they were friends, yeah. My my dad and Richie actually had a falling out because Richie uh, hit him over the head with the edge of a snowboard. Yeah, dog, I was there. Really, okay. Yeah, I was fucking there. And Farm was
0: fucking there. And your Uncle Jay was there. And your, or your, your Uncle, fuck, yeah, your Uncle Jay and your dad. And Gary Braceland. And Gary fucking Braceland. Yeah, yeah. I remember that shit, dude. I fucking,
2: yeah, I was right there. I fucking had to stop fucking foul from beating on your fucking pot. Fucking foul. Anywho. Yeah, pretty crazy situation. And my dad had to go to the hospital. Yeah. And I remember seeing him in the hospital with, uh, you know, this big gouge taken out of his head. They had to shave his head. They stitched it up. It was gnarly. Fucking gnarly, dude. It affected me. I was freaking
0: PTSD from that shit. Believe me. It was gnarly to see. And it was just, so it was just a crazy scene dude so me and farm through k2 came up to alaska um went to jay's shop did this promo deal met jay and richie and they fucking tour us around hook up with them obviously we all smoked dope cigs fucking yeah drink let's do fucking you are bros so that's who we called every time fuck i'm coming back up call foul call jay and Fowl foul was a bad dude, his dad was a fucking drug dude Fucking had gambling joints, fucking prostitution shit Little Richie Fowler, tiny little motherfucker Huge head on his shoulders, fucking chip on his shoulder Fucking, you know, thought he was a fucking gangster Loud as fuck, talk so loud dude, always loud, so fucking loud, fucking Fowl Anyways, we'd hook up with these guys, go in your uncle's fucking limo to the Valdez, fucking smoking, drinking, fucking midnight driving to Valdez, gnarly snowstorms, just crazy shit, dude. Mm-hmm. And those fuckers smoke cigarettes like one after the fucking other, chain smoke, motherfucking cigs. Me and Farm hung with these guys and. Always felt uncomfortable around Foul, especially this house. He's always growing dope, and you know the fucking feds are looking at him. The cops are watching him, you know, so it was kind of weird. But once we got in the mountains, shit was all good, you know what I'm saying? And basically, when we all four got to the mountains, Jay would take over, dude. Jay was the one we were actually fucking following most of the time. Jay was the one that knew root finding skills, knew his way around those fucking mountains. Always was fucking avy savvy. Jay was the one we were always fucking following him. You know, I was always waiting for fucking Jay to lead the fucking way. I can always remember that. Jay, your uncle Jay is fucking the shit. He's a fucking badass snowboarder. Yeah, big fat motherfucker. You know, compared to me, I was probably like hundred pounds in those days, and he was probably like hundred eighty, right?
1: <laughs> fucking
0: drinking beer big old mustache and beard shit and just lobbing himself off shit just hucking shit fucking loving it always had like three or four beers when he's riding down we'd stop fucking we'd have a cigarette and he'd have a beer and know, was fucking it was good dude it just kind of got weird towards the end there fucking with foul and it was just weird drug shit going over there and weird scene up here bush company foul we'd go to the bush company for fucking five six hours at a time foul throwing money you know it's just crazy shit dude like that so it was like the wild fucking west up here that's how it was in those days it really was because once we go to valdez they had like hella guns all the time we're always shooting guns and shit drinking smoking riding that's just what it was funny shit dude
2: it seems like maybe there was a portion of you guys that grew out of that and you were just kind of over it at a certain point.
0: Definitely. I was over it, dude. I was just, I was kind of over it. Just, I was just over the bullshit, dude. I was over fucking, there's no progression, right? I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to make more money. I'm trying to go to different places and I was starting to lose sponsors by this time just because there's better people and I wasn't producing videos and all this like I was early in my year mm-hmm. so I knew what was going your father myself no not your dad your Uncle Jay myself Fowler Pat Solomon uh, freaking oh, Pete Collins we went out and got helied out to the the River right we went helicopter fishing ended up getting stuck out there for like eight days. We were supposed to be there for like four, got stuck in for four weather days. Um, but that's when I knew to come back to your question. That's when I knew this is what I want to do when I'm not snowboarding. This is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. So that's when I asked Doug Brewer, Hey, fucking give me a job this summer. And I ended up being a dock hand for him for two years Then a guide spot opened up and, yeah, then I've just been guiding for him. So that's when I knew, as soon as my sponsorship started running out and I didn't have any money coming in from snowboarding, that's when I knew I better get something else going on. And since I loved getting in those airplanes, fishing and hunting, it's just a no-brainer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, that seems like kind of a typical trap in snowboarding where there are the snowboarders who are more interested in the writing aspect and then there are those who are more interested in the partying aspect. And, you know, as you get older, you, you know, you start falling apart. You know, you, you realize that you can't, uh, you can't party till three o'clock in the morning and then wake up at eight mm-hmm. and get in the heli and perform.
0: Yeah. It's, eventually it all comes to you. I mean, I got sick of it. I wasn't a drinker. I never drank, didn't like it. I was just a smoker. So being around those people all the time, constantly just turned me off from all that, right? Mm -hmm. I was over it. Um, But eventually everybody just moves on. Everybody grows up. Look at all these guys that were in my genre, were in my era, right? The roaches, you know, people like No Slaznick, even though he's dead. John Biaki, he just died. So I mean, I'm fifty-something years old, dude. There's my generation of snowboarders. They're they're falling, fading. So yeah, you got to figure something out before before you you lose the love for it and find something else.
2: What's that like seeing your peers pass away like that?
0: Dude, it's crazy, man. I've had like four snowboard friends die this year. And it kind of puts things in perspective for me um, that I better fucking have some fun and, and enjoy my life and do the shit that I want to do, right? Which is all clean, good stuff. It's nothing bad. But there's still things I want to see. There's still golf courses I want to play. So, I mean, that's kind of what my focus is now.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't want to
0: say retirement because my whole life has been lived through retirement. You know, I've done the things. I'm so lucky to be able to do things I love to do and make money. Fishing, golfing, snowboarding. Boom. Been able to make a career, raise families, own property, on all, all that stuff. So I'm really lucky. And yeah, seeing all my friends go, it just makes me want to have more fun and go do all the shit I got to do before it's my time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You said that you weren't into drinking, that you've never really been into drinking. Who in your mind were you watching back then that was like taking the partying aspect to the next level? Oh, you know,
0: dude, people like farm and brew and just everybody, right? Everybody's trying to out drink and out get drunk at each other. That's, that's how that our generation was. You know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I guess it's still like that. You get Travis Rice and his boys and they're trying to outdo themselves, but Justin Snowboard on their boards, right? In our days, it was fuck all out smoky, all out drinky, all fuck, you know, that's, that was just a mentality. So it was just, it was just a lot of people. That was just, that was what they were doing, man. Drinking freaking whiskey and smoking dope.
2: You know, I'm not sure if you would know this, but do you think, or do you know if newer generations of snowboarders look at past generations of snowboarders as uh, cautionary tales? No,
0: because my generation was pretty much the last fucking fuck it generation snowboarder, right? The next generation kind of learned from us the next couple so i the young kids right now they're looking at last year year before year before that Mm -hmm. they're not looking 20 years back they're not looking that far back right i don't i don't think people are dwelling on my old videos as much as the new shit that's coming out every year right and the travis rice hype and his event hype i mean i think more people are watching that shit than the old King of the Hill contest or something.
2: I also think that those old snowboard videos are having a resurgence right now. You know, I think that snowboarding has gotten to the point where when you watch someone like Mark McMorris or even Travis Rice, mm-hmm. it seems inaccessible. You know, you, you can't be someone first starting out in snowboarding and watch someone like that and think, you know, not everyone can think this Maybe some aspiring, you know, future super pro can think this, but not the general masses. They're not going to watch those two riders or riders like them and think like, Oh gee, I want to get into snowboarding. You know, they're going to watch something that seems more fun to do. Yeah, maybe. But you know, if you're
0: into your sport, you're going to know who the
2: best is, Mm -hmm. whether
0: it's, Football, baseball, basketball, golf, snowboarding, it don't matter. There's going to be those guys who are highlighted, who are the best, boom. Nowadays, it used to be Sean White, right? Mm -hmm. Snowboarding, Sean White, boom. That's what people were thinking. So there's always, you always got to know who is at the top. Now where you fit in from where you're at to the top is your own deal. But everybody knows in their sport who the best people are and so i I don't know man i think that's you're only as good as you are you know i teach people golf and you're only as good as the time you put into it Mm -hmm. right you play golf once a week you hit you never practice you're you're not going to be very good so you know how good people are And you know the route to get there. And it's just, it comes down to you. How much time you want to put into it, how much effort you want to put into it is exactly how good you're going to be.
2: Do you feel like you learned anything in snowboarding or from snowboarding that you apply to fishing or golf today?
0: Oh, definitely, dude. Definitely, you know, I always attributed golf and snowboarding. I thought it was the exact same thing, right? You get on top of a mountain before you drop you're checking the wind you're assessing the slope where's my exit if it breaks here i'm going to go there so you're doing all this homework before you drop in okay i got to get out to there if this goes here that's my safe zone or the wind the ripples whatever it is you're taking into account you get on the golf course before i hit that ball i'm looking at my lie i'm looking at the wind i'm looking do i need to hit this high Do i hit this low so yeah I always attribute them, their their thinking games, Mm -hmm. right? So golf is, you know, 30% physical, 70% mental. You got to figure a lot of things out before you hit that shot. And that's kind of what I attributed to snowboarding as well was, you know, you just got to plan your stuff, take your time, and don't drop until you're ready, right? You don't hit your golf ball until you're absolutely ready. So... Yeah. I kind of link both of those together fishing. When you put in the variable, like another animal in there, all that kind of flies out of the water because all you can do is, is what you can do. If they're not there, they're not biting. You're not going to get them mm-hmm. and you can use everything in your box or, or not. So, but mainly golfing and snowboarding.
2: So I wanted to just get back to the partying aspect real quick, cause I I just realized I had one more question that I wanted to ask about that. You spent a lot of time with Sean Farmer. Do you have any Farmer stories? Oh, dude, yeah, uh, freaking Farm, dude. Farm is the shit. He is
0: literally the craziest son of a bitch you'll ever know in your <laughs> life. He is always out doing, never outdone. Right? That—that's one of the lyrics to his songs, and it's true. He. <laughs> He'll always go bigger. He'll always go faster. He'll always go go crazier. Um, Stories about farm. You know, remember when he's fighting with his girlfriend, Morgan, in the car. I'm doing 40 degrees. It's puking snow. He opens the door and kicks her out. That's one thing. You mean like 40
2: 40 miles miles an hour hour
0: in a fucking snowstorm? Yeah, just kicked her right out the window or right out the door.
2: What happened to her?
0: I freaking stopped, picked her up, fucking... They're still fighting. Boom, door opens up. They both follow out the next time. So, yeah, they're... It's just shit like that. Um, Just Farm, dude. He's a badass. He can take a lot of pain. He can take a lot of misery. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, Farm's the shit, dude. I love that guy. And I wish him well. You know, it's... He was a badass motherfucker. Probably at one time, you know one of the baddest dudes in the sport.
2: Do you think that we'll ever see another snowboarder like that?
0: I do. I think you're going to see, you know, I do. I think you're going to see some, some crazy real partier dudes kind of resurface. You know, I think it's going to come back full circle in that way. It's at some point, um, where maybe the guy's not just like a super athlete, but just a super phenom and doesn't really give a shit about the sponsorship stuff and, or how his hair looks or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. cause farm, you know, last time he had dreadlocks, he freaking epoxied them in there. That's one thing I'd never forget watching him make dreadlocks out of epoxy in his hair. Fucking worked. Uh, yeah, but I don't know, dude. I'm not really down in the scene anymore. So I don't know who's even out there. And the people that the kids that I see riding around the resorts and stuff, they, you know, you can tell there's the partiers and there's the guys that have beers in their pocket. And there's the kids that are staying on the slopes and just doing what they're doing, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So you had this saying when you were talking about King of the Hill competitors and you would say, you're trying to take these kids to the edge of death without killing them where did that come from dude that just comes
0: from the reality of writing in valdez writing in alaska dude because it's there for you right i'm gonna put you on a, a slope that will test every ability level every big bald motherfucker ability level right you want to jump off a hundred footer it's right there you want to go off the 70 it's there the 50 it's there the steepness and, and that's what the whole concept of the event was this is there's no other event that's harder than this right you had a freaking four minute downhill dude five minute downhill on your snowboard six minute downhill that's a long time, dude. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever pointed a freaking 4,000 foot mountain top to bottom, but
2: <laughs> I haven't.
0: <laughs> it's so that that's what I was. I was trying to bring, give these competitors a stage that had no limits. We are in a limitless environment. That's that was where that comes from. We're a limitless environment, bring you to the edge of death without killing you, but you can kill yourself very easily.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm so lucky nobody died. couple accidents, but nobody fucking died um, out there. I think your Uncle Jay was one of them.
2: Yeah, he definitely was in a an avalanche, a really gnarly one. Yeah. So did you believe that saying was figurative or literal every time you said it? I thought it was, I played more literally on
0: that, dude, because that's how I felt. When I was up there, because there's no limits, there's, you could do anything you wanted. I don't care all the shit you've been talking. You think you're this shit. Okay. Come up here. Mm-hmm. Have at it. And that's, and that's how I felt. I didn't feel like I was the shit. I didn't feel like I could conquer and do all that. I just felt that this is a place where it can be done. And that's how it made me feel. Right. There's, it's limitless.
2: Mm -hmm. Do you feel like the, the idea of King of the Hill when it was in the very beginning and everyone is kind of coming up with what this thing would be? Do you think that that idea matched the reality?
0: I do, but you got to remember there wasn't a lot of people dude involved. I mean, Uncle Jay was a competitor. Your dad was more the only one there besides this lady, Bonnie McDonald. We had Sean Peterson worked for us for a few years. Mm -hmm. But your dad was, you know, basically the one making making the calls and shit as well. So it wasn't a lot of people. And, you know, me and your dad were pretty much on the same page. We all knew what we wanted. We wanted the baddest fucking downhill course that... If you don't have the legs, you ain't fucking going to finish. We wanted a sick freestyle course where we're going to build a couple kickers. But for the most part, you got cornices, you got wind lips, you got everything. We know what's in front of us. The judges know in their section that they're watching how much air you can catch and how big you can go. So, And and of course, the extreme day, which was good about extreme days, we never gave them a pre-run downhill day. Freestyle day, you get a pre-run, so you get to go down and check all the shit out. Extreme day, you get to sit at the bottom, look at it, pick your line, get to the top, and then do it, which I thought was always scary as fuck. Picking your own line at the top? I'll just go on blind, doing it without, okay. you know, I love riding twice. That was my deal. That's why I would go up to Nick's all the time, because I knew it, right? I knew what was over that quarter, and I know I can go bigger than I just went, and riding the same run time after time after time just made me stronger because I could go bigger and faster and I wasn't scared, right? I knew what was over the rise, and I knew what's over that hill or I knew it. I knew that whole Nicks run like the back of my hand because so I spent tens of thousands of dollars to get up there. Fucking airplane. Which they still have here. I fly.
2: So it seems like at a certain point, you transitioned from being a snowboarder to an event coordinator. Would you say that's accurate?
0: Yeah, pretty much.
2: Yep. What do you think motivated that transition?
0: Uh, probably a reason to try and keep me relevant in the industry, uh, keep my name out there, and it made me feel good, dude, to be a part of this event. You know, it it made me feel like I had relevance still even though I may not be on TV, but I'm now I'm the one giving you an opportunity to be on TV. And I'm now I'm giving these writers an opportunity to make their careers and their fortunes through this event.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, what do you think were some of the lasting impacts of King of the Hill?
0: The lasting impacts of King of the Hill. I don't know. Memories, dude, people who are around that and associated that never forget it. Never. Um, Lasting memories, King of the Hills, Valdez, dude. That event kind of put that place on the map a little bit, you know. It was just right in the early years of of its heyday, and it definitely turned a lot of people on to Valdez and Alaska, right? So I think that's a pretty good lasting effect on it. And, you know, take Tailgate, for example. That came from, you know, Mark totally wanted that King of the Hill atmosphere. That's why he came up with tailgate Alaska.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And you helped out with that as well, right?
0: Yeah. The first year. And then he fucking fucked me on money. And yeah, anybody that's ever worked for that guy knows what kind of
2: person he is. And how do you think that King of the Hill compared to tailgate or tailgate compared to King of the Hill?
0: Well, king of the hill it's all it's on its own because we have those 50 athletes there for one reason right and we all got we have them there um tailgate was more just hey come fucking throw your tent up fucking let's go spend your money here doing this and that i think king of the hill was more was more because it was smaller it was probably more more cooler more festive dude I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Tailgate was cool. I loved it. It was a great idea. He just just, couldn't work with the guy, right?
2: And how and why did King of the Hill end? I mean, you kind of touched on it earlier, but is there any more than that? It's just money, dude. I mean, I still have all the names and the rights and all that to it. It's just
0: finding somebody to go raise the budget. That's all it comes down to. I don't want to do it. I'm not that guy.
2: Wait, you said that you have all of the the rights and the name to it. You still own that. Yeah. So nobody can have a competition in Thompson Pass called King of the Hill. Correct. Besides you. Correct. So do you have any future plans?
0: How good are you at raising money, dude? Do you have any future plans?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Are you handing it off to me?
0: I'll hand it off to you. You take 15% of the total budget you raise. I always thought that was a good incentive for somebody to spend a year and do it. But that's what it takes. It takes a year, if not more, to to do it. So, a photographer named Tony Harrington. You probably know him or have heard of him. Harrow is his name. Okay, yeah been coming covered my event had the rip curl heli challenge down in down in new zealand right kind of the sister event of king of the hill same style he saw my event said fuck yeah let's do it went down helped him pull his off a couple years so probably three or four years ago we tried with him because he's in contact with a lot of money people you know let's get this thing going and we just couldn't couldn't find the cash you know For it, he wanted a big budget. He's thinking two point something million dollars, but you know what, dude? You don't need that big a budget. You got heli time, rescue money, competitor entry fees are pretty much going to pay for food and lodging and a little bit of the heli time. There's other heli time that you have to take into account with uh, researching slopes and doing a bunch of shit like that, but. The whole deal is nobody wants to spend money on this thing. How are they going to get their money out of it? Well, we got to have a TV show. Well, now we need another $600,000, right? Because mm-hmm. you actually have to pay for all that stuff. Pay for the airtime, pay for the production, pay for the production team to come up. So yeah, dude, it's 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 a lot of fucking work for that guy to find that money, right? Once the money's in there, it's easy. It's really easy to pull off. But finding the money is the hardest part. And that's
2: something that I was not good at and never was. So what would King of the Hill in 2021 or 2022 look like? King of the Hill 2022 would probably be like,
0: I would say 40 competitors, at least half women, half men, if I could get, would be sick. Never could get that. So we would probably do like, you know, who knows 15 girls the rest men but and just do a smaller version of it or better yet have it a biannual event right Mm -hmm. or every three years every two years this event comes out so that gives you time to get your budget going and get your competitors dialed in but it'd be the same thing speed freestyle extreme
2: and people would stay at the totem the Wherever, sana, yeah all yeah, of it
0: yeah you have different packages you could have camping packages you could have no lodging packages so you just have a bunch of different packages you could have food packages now we got to go to town we got to go to these restaurants say hey i'm putting together this food package i want to put your name on this card my competitors have this card they can go to any place in town and spend this food money that they have boom now the town's stoked because we're feeding Got to keep the kids in town so they spend their money, right?
2: Well, that's something to think about. That's that's a cool idea.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you know somebody or you think you can, you got GoFundMe skills. You throw it out there. I would say to have a snowboard contest without a TV show, and if you could figure out how to do it all online, but that takes a machine in itself, right there. Mm-hmm. Um, you could do it for under a million bucks. Your heli time is going to be about 40 to 50 grand. Your lodging and all that's going to be about 30 to 40 grand. And then you're going to have your rescue. It's going to be about 30 to 40 grand. And then you better have at least another 30, 40 grand to fill all the holes with.
2: Are you interested in being a part of it? Totally dude. Yeah. Very interested. I just to find the right people. And why don't you think that anybody has done it since? Um, just because
0: maybe people in the actual contest world realize that these events don't generate money. They don't generate return on ROI, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge thing. And I think the people that have already been through it know how much of a hassle and a pain in the ass it is to do it so i don't know i haven't really thrown it out there to anybody but i definitely think it's time i think it's definitely a time and i think it would get hella play if you kicked it back off dude people would be stoked just to be a part of it you get all these old motherfuckers that were in it from years ago wanting to be in it you know mm-hmm and so I had fifty competitors and because we were doing it in early April, we had the light, we could run fifty people, no problem.
2: Yeah, Alaska, I think, is probably the most perfect place for something like that. Oh, totally. Because of the light, you know, even when you look at a summer camp up at Alaska, it is just ripe to happen again. Yep. I mean, especially with nostalgia culture right now, where you could bring back the old King of the Hill uh logo. You know, have all that retro stuff. Yep. You know, those T-shirts, those sweaters, whatever swag, uh, would just you know that would sell.
0: Yep, that's it too. See, I think there's room, dude. I think you could do it. It's just finding the time, finding the people that have the time to do it.
2: Hmm. Well, Nick, you know that does it for all my questions. This has been awesome. This has been an honor to to talk to you at this length, you know, as an adult, cause I'm sure we, we'd we met before, like you'd mentioned, you know, when I was a child, but this has been really cool. Oh, dude, I thank you for reaching out and I'm sorry I didn't get to you earlier. And my son, Giovanni,
0: he's like, he made this all happen, dude. He got with Corey to get your number. And I was like, dude, my dad needs to talk to Cody. so. My son, who's a snowboarder, worked in the park crew with uh, Corey McDonald Mm -hmm. up there at Bogus and just had a great time, came into his own. So I'm taking my son to Valdez next year. And that's going to be... So next year I am going to Valdez. And what I am... I've already talked to five or six older people that have been through Valdez back in the day. And I'm trying to put a little reunion kind of reunion ride thing kind of in Valdez next year mm-hmm. for people like Farm and anybody that's been there that maybe hasn't been there in a lot of years. Come out, honor some of our fallen homeboys, and just go old school. Old school, ride them up again. So maybe you need to get some time. it be the last week of March, first week of April.
2: Okay, yeah. Yeah.
0: That those exact dates so we can get some good snow and some good light.
2: And are you guys eyeing any lines or maybe trying to go down memory lane in some way? Um, We're definitely going to do a lot of snow machining on the front pass, but just as
0: I just want to get him up there because as soon as he sees it, he's going to be fucking blown away just like I was and humbled mm-hmm. and be like, why would you go anywhere else and probably drop anchor there like I did. That's awesome. Yeah. No, he's, he's stoked. So that's my, my gift for him graduating high school is going out there next year. So we're going a little, little run. It was nice because I reached out to K2 this year so I could get him some product and they totally outfitted him up, which I was really stoked on.
2: What was that conversation like, you know, reaching out to an old sponsor? Dude, it was weird. It was weird, man, because it took me like a couple weeks to figure out
0: find the guy that I actually need to talk to, right? Mm-hmm. And I talked to him. And he's like, "I know you don't remember me, but I rode with you on a chairlift on Mount Baker in 1991." I'm like, "Oh, bro, <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> you, but fucking, I can't believe you remember that shit." And it was really cool because like, "Hey, man, we still honor and respect your you your." a k2 family member anything you need i'm so happy you reached out we want to stay in 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 talks with you and communication with you and of course we'll outfit your kids and you and stuff so it was it was really cool
2: that's awesome yeah do you have anything else you'd like to add i don't know man just it was so real and pure back in
0: those old days and i know it's got to be like that for some people these days somewhere Um, but you know snowboarding treated me good and met a lot of cool people and seen a lot of cool shit and been all over the world so got nothing bad to say about it dude probably one of the luckiest guys you'll ever meet
2: you can support local grassroots journalism at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine you can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine crude conversations is written hosted and produced by me cody liska for crude magazine music was produced by Elkota beats